0: to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy jackson Beverly. Join me as I speak with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities, and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please consider sharing with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 119. Ruthie Marlene is a Mexican-American novelist, screenwriter, and poet born and raised in Orange County, California. She earned a writer's certificate in fiction from UCLA and is the author of Isabella's Island, Curse of the Ninth, nominated for a James Kirkwood Literary Prize, and her latest novel, Agave Blues, from which an excerpt, A Good Tabernero Listens, is nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Hi, Ruthie, and welcome to the show.
1: It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much, Mandy, for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. Now, in your latest novel, Agave Blues, your main character, Maya, is an attorney. Her family is Mexican, she lives in California, and she has a daughter living in Mexico. Her bio sounds a lot like yours. What other similarities do the two of you share?
1: Well, uh, a lot of similarities. She is 100% Mexican. However, I'm half or mixed. And I did work in the legal field for um, probably over 30 years, only as a legal secretary and then a paralegal. So Maya's parents are 100%. they're, They're both from Mexico, whereas my father was not. But I had to make the story that way so that it would be a little bit more believable that Maya's grandfather could possibly be Pancho Villa. And of course, I threw in the magic realism, so anything's possible.
0: Yes. And I think that as writers, there's always a little bit of our personalities or things that have happened to us in our past or locations we've been to hidden in our stories or our characters.
1: Right. And I, I, I sort of want to break away from it, but you know, it's always write what you know. Yeah, yeah. Truth is truer than fiction. So why not work with what you've got? In the meanwhile, though, we want to protect our ancestors, our family, the people that we do know. And so that's why I tend to throw in a little bit of magic or some paranormal or something. Otherwise, how would I know these things?
0: Well, I like to think there's a little bit of magic everywhere, so I loved what you did with it. Now, you've spoken about the signs that led you back to Mexico. Can you share the story of the angel pin and any others which prompted you to write Agave Blues?
1: I've always loved angels. You know, my, my granddaughter loves unicorns. Um, everybody has their favorite thing to believe in. Uh, mine was angels. And at that time, probably 2006 or seven, I was getting a lot of people coming to me who their names were either angel or they knew angel, or they, were, they believed in angels. Um, so I was at, at the time doing some laundry in the a community laundry room. And I took all the laundry out and put it into the basket. When I got home, I shook it out and this angel pin fell to the floor. And it wasn't my angel pin. I don't know where it, it came from other than I'm logical. Somebody else is probably left it in the laundry room. But it was just adding more and more to this, this angel sign. Later that afternoon, my cousin Angelina from Guadalajara or Jalisco called Asking, when would you be returning? Or when are you coming back? We haven't seen you in so many years. So just more and more things like that. um, Asking that or wondering when I'm coming back. I had a daughter working in Mexico. She was working for the Guadalajara Reporter. So she might have been there prompting them to get me to come back. She would say, Mom, you need to come down here. You need to live down here. It's, It's rather inexpensive. There's a lot of expatriates. Um, at the time, I was ha- I was going through a difficult time in my
0: relationship, <laughs> much like Maya. Ah, you see, there it is again—that story of ourselves coming out on the page. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you brought the angel pin into Agave Blues into the story,
1: right? And well, and that—that that was a true story of how she got called to go down there. I might have embellished a little bit more in the story, of course. It started with the angel pin. I was speaking to somebody else recently, whose story about his family history began with a photo or something that's a picture that fell to the floor and cracked, and that was his sign to write his story. So there's always something.
0: Yeah, I believe we need to be cognizant of these little signs around us.
1: Well, and that's that's the thing, and the thing in the book too is, and what Maya learns is to be aware of her surroundings because you you, you ask the universe questions and and you want answers and you just expect that they're going to come in a, you know, in a a letter, They're they're all around. They're in nature. They're in, you know, an angel pin.
0: And there's a scene in the book where Maya's looking at a painting, showing her swimming naked next to a turtle. And later when she's snorkeling with her daughter, a turtle appears. Now, the first image mirrors the cover of your book, Isabella's Island, published in 2004. What's the connection?
1: Isabella's Island was set in the Cayman Islands. So there's turtles and crocodiles and um, I had my sister, I asked my sister to do my book cover and they gave her the props. I said, I, I would like a turtle. I'm wearing turtle earrings. I had a pet turtle when I was a little girl. It was, a, it was, um, I kept it in a little orange plastic pond with plastic green palm tree. And there's just something about turtles that the shell, the hard shell to, they have on their exterior to protect their soft, insides so there, I had I had the little turtle resonated with me because of that shell and because of that soft underside and and I, I kind of relate to that turtle a lot. I love the the fairy tale of the the tortoise and the hare you know the tortoise wins in the end just you know does what it needs to do one step at a time.
0: Well I actually have a short story that I'll relate to you about turtles and it kind of makes your story even deeper to me. After my father died about 28 years ago, I kept dreaming of Aboriginal drawings and paintings of turtles. So I called my mother and I asked her to look up in our books what the turtle means in Aboriginal culture. And she called me back and she said, Mandy, it's the symbol of the circle of life. And during the last time I saw dad, we talked about this quite a bit. Oh, wow. So as I was reading your book and I connected with the turtle parts of the story, I was wondering if your subconscious was kind of talking to you about the circle of life and guiding you toward this story. I might have been when I started this book some 2007. I also had another
1: friend from Hawaii and she was writing about the Onu. Onu, I don't know how you say it in, in Hawaiian, about the turtle. She was living in L.A., Wanting to return to Hawaii, and we both had these turtle stories. You forget where you get these ideas, and, and your questions prompted me to re- try and remember because you're not conscious of it at the time. Following the the lead, but I love I love that 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 turtle story and the coming back. That's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. Now you've written four books published by different publishers, and the first three offered publishing services similar to self publishing. What brought on the change to submit to Touchpoint Press?
1: Well, my goal is always to fi- get an agent and, and you know, find one of those big New York, is it five or down to three? I don't know. It's just not going to, ha- it just hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. So the first publisher, my first publisher died on the eve of my publication. Yes, I read about that. That was so sad. Yeah, well, it was absolutely tragic, but it, I... I I couldn't feel bad for me. I had to feel, I mean, I felt bad for the family. So I just, I had a finished product. The company went bankrupt. So I, I, I went with the next company, which was, is it called vanity or self-publishing? I really, I didn't have to pay anything. As a matter of fact, they paid me a dollar. And the only thing I had to do is get everybody I know to buy my book and pre-order. So that pays the costs. Uh, that's how they get away with that. And then the next one, they treated me really well. It's a hybrid publisher you have more control you have more say in in your product so that book came out 2020 curse of the ninth and then the pandemic hit so everything that i'd worked so hard to market and do the publicity for i had book signings across the south um got myself in a bookstore i worked really hard doing the publicity and the marketing for myself they even wanted to publish Agave Blues, but they wanted to see what this, the numbers were going to look like. I mean, we got hit by a pandemic. There aren't going to be any numbers. We don't, even know, we don't even know what we're doing. Yeah. And, and, and then uh, Touchpoint came along and offered me a contract. And I looked at it all around and there was no, no fees and um, they were a real traditional royalty paying publishing house. Uh, one thing I do know about this journey that I've been on, uh, my, uh, the, what I've learned with this experience is that you still have to do a lot of the work yourself, the publicity, the marketing, getting out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that goes without saying now. Uh, marketing is part of the job description for the author as well as writing. Now, what form of writing came first to you, poetry, screenwriting, or novels?
1: I'd have to say Poetry. I've had some uh, some poetry published, so I guess we can call me a poet. But I don't, I don't believe that's my title. But I started with poetry as a little girl, and it was a way for me to express myself and just go into my room and write down all my melancholy thoughts and feel a little bit better that I'd created something. So I, I remember um, in seventh grade, I was turning in my poetry in the English class, and my teacher, Mr. Sparks, asked, "Is everything okay at home?" <laughs> And from then on, I probably didn't write poetry as much, or at least I wasn't turning it in. And then I was escaping into more fairy tale writing. But I got back to it probably in my late teens. I wrote a lot of poetry. It ended up being very spiritual. And every poem that I wrote, I had to make a reference from the Bible, the Bible credit for it because I was going through this other spiritual phase. I couldn't do anything without giving praise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny! And what about the screenwriting? I grew up in
1: LA. I love, love, love movies, and I watch movies. And I think I can do that. I can write that story. Agave Blues is what got me into a master class at UCLA, and um, I learned more about the structure and the. The three acts and the, and the inciting, inc, inciting incidents and the plots and the beats and all that. And that was done as kind of a mathematical kind of way to do it. It also, though, helped me write novels. So I did a few of those. I did end up working in the movie industry for a couple of years and I did some um, screenplay work. And did you enjoy the course at UCLA? I enjoyed it immensely. I started uh, probably in 96. And because I had children and things going on in my life, I didn't finish till 2015 with a writer's certificate in f- fiction.
0: Well, it's great you completed it. And honestly, sometimes life just gets in the way of the things that we want to do, especially when you're a mom and you're raising kids. Now, Agave Blues covers different subjects such as painting, agave farming, cancer treatment, and legal work. Did you research as you wrote or before you began writing and what topic took up most of your time? So like that painting
1: where she's looking at it and things start to happen, start unfolding. I I sat down at my computer and started writing and things just started popping up. Um, And so as they popped up, you know, I'd have to research. What is this? Does this work? And just it was so much fun to go down this this path and discover these things that I didn't uh, outline or plot. It just they unfolded that way. The uh, the legal, uh, of course, I had some background in it, so it gave me some credi- credibility as an attorney um, for my character to be an attorney. I first started reading um, the Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and he talks about Toltec wisdom. And so I was, again, I was searching and I, I want answers. So I went out and bought Toltec for dummies. Anyway, <laughs> oh, no, it's the complete idiot's guide, Toltec wisdom. And from there, I got some other ideas about the ancestors and the, you know, the, the, the gods, the Mayoel and, and things like that. So it just started feeding my imagination.
0: What about agave? The, the region where I'm from or from where my family
1: I'm from is the tequila country. I get down to Mexico finally. And my family takes me on a tour of the tequila farms. And I had an uncle who owned a tequila farm and he had been calling me too. He wanted help distributing the product. And so um, there was a story. Maya's got a good life in LA. She's an attorney. She's got a, you know, relationship. She's got a child. There's no reason to go back other than the call. La sangre. The blood calls you back. So the research on the, the cancer... I was there, and then one of my cousins said, well, you know, they're doing research, um, cancer research at the University of Guadalajara. I said, oh, my God, you're kidding. So I had to give Maya this incurable disease without giving things away. And then I was uh, researching, and I had communication with Dr. Guillermo Torres, who works in the lab there. They're still working on cancer research. It's not a cure, but it's just a way to administer or to deliver the drugs for for things like Crohn's and cancer and other stomach ailments. So just fascinating that you know, that it's just not the tequila. The agave is just not it does not produce tequila. It's it's not the tequila that kills you. It's 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 life, how you interpret life.
0: And to see fields of agave must be quite extraordinary. I mean we have quite a few in our garden but to see them in a field on a farm must be extraordinary especially the colors
1: they are and when the light and the dew is shining on them or the depending on depending on the mist at the time they glisten they're beautiful and then they have these um kiote flower shoots that come out and they're gorgeous they really are they're probably a lot like the turtle with that hard shell you know
0: Yeah. And you know, the big flower that grows out of the center of the agave plant, surfers around here have tried making surfboards out of them, which is interesting. Right. You
1: can do paper products. um, You know that the tips of the agave, if you pull it out, there's a string, a sinewy string. So it's it's like you already have the needle.
0: So you have the needle and the thread.
1: Yeah. Next time you go out, See if you can pull it apart. It's going to be a string. And that's how they made clothing and mats and all kinds of things. It's a natural needle and thread.
0: And getting back to research about the book, did you learn about art and painting from your sister who is an artist? Oh, that's right.
1: Yes. So um, I wanted to give Maya some kind of a talent, something that she would have abandoned as a child. And so I thought, well, what can she do? So I think it was art, and that's how we, I created Gabriel too. He was the artist in the field, and and helped her remember how to to paint again. It helped her remember her passion. Anyway, my sister's a great artist uh, in Malibu. Yeah, so she helped me. She helped me uh, with the terminology and the strokes, and when I do this, what does this mean? And the and the under painting, and how the colors come through, and and the shadowing, and things like that. So.
0: And are you working on another book?
1: I'm working on the sequel to Curse of the Ninth. There was a granddaughter that was left just at the piano in the last book. So we're going to take off running with her. It's called And Still Her Voice. And I'm working on a short story for a magazine. It's a noir. After this, I'm thinking, oh, short stories are just probably more satisfying and you can get done quicker and reject it faster.
0: <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. And is there one book that you'd like to suggest people read? And also, what are you currently reading?
1: I loved anything by Philip Roth. I love The Human Stain. I love things by T.C. Boyle. Tortilla Curtain. It's got the the story of immigration in it and, you know, the the struggle to come here and, and live. The Human Stain by Philip Roth, again, it's about passing It's about hiding behind who you really are. Uh, It was just fascinating. Currently, I just finished reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Uh, It was wonderful. So I was also reading uh, Where the Crawdad Sings. I loved it.
0: Yes, I'm looking forward to reading that book. It's on my bookshelf, waiting patiently. Ruthie, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I wish you all the best with the Garvey Blues.
1: Thank you so much, Mandy. I mean, this has just been incredible and, and I'm just so humbled and honored that you would read my book.
0: Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly and check out my website at com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to the bookshop com. click on the little orange heart at the top right corner of the page and you can donate using PayPal. Your contributions support the editing and production costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.